This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I asked design program manager Sylvie Singh how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Facebook is a, is a global company, as you know, and there's no way that we can build and serve and connect the world without having as many different perspectives and opinions and ideas behind our features and products and as possible. So um, I feel like diversity fosters empathy and innovation, and I can't really think of an instance where something was not elevated through kind of, again, the intersection of different minds and, and thought processes and perspectives. Um, I think it's probably the most important thing if we're kind of building for a global community. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, MailChimp is looking for a design manager. And here at Revision Path, we're looking for a new design writer to join our team. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. Now, if you're already more familiar with MailChimp, you should think about joining their new partner program. You can open the door to more opportunities for your business, get an insider's view of MailChimp, gain unique support and insights, and get access to exclusive resources. For more information, go to MailChimp.com forward slash partners. MailChimp, send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding that perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. You know what else Hover makes easy? Setting up that new domain with the most popular website builders out there. Just use their Hover Connect feature to set up your domain automatically, and it does it really in just a few clicks. So no more digging through like help articles and knowledge base articles to try to figure out how to get your domain working. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with a multi-talented Felicia Penza. Let's start the show. So tell us who you are and what you do. 
My name is Felicia Penza. I am a graphic designer at Phoenix Art Museum. Tell me about the kind of work that you're doing at the art museum. I'm a Jill of all trades. It's everything from banners to brochures to we have a quarterly members magazine that publishes invitations and title walls for exhibitions that are premiering for the first time signage, you know, wayfinding for, it's just, there are so many departments that help make the museum work. So everything from security needing signs that, you know, encourage visitors not to bring in their backpacks and their water bottles. And of course, translating that into Spanish. I mean, we have someone that provides the translations, but just making sure to be conscious of you know, highlighting both English and Spanish throughout the museum is also a challenge as far as design. But yeah, everything from visitor services to security to human resources to our museum store to our restaurant, everything that has something to do with the museum has to go through our marketing department in order for signage or communications to be relayed to the public. And that is what I... I basically handled day to day. I would imagine for, you know, for a graphic designer, that's probably a a dream job doing design for an art museum like that. And and from what you're saying, it sounds like you touch a lot of different points within the museum. So you can really kind of put your thumbprint on the museum in terms of your design style. Absolutely. And to have that responsibility over an entire brand can be, you know, intimidating and I can revel in it all at the same time. (laughs) Now, you mentioned that you're also kind of doing work in two languages. You have someone that's providing that that Spanish translation as well. Are you finding that you have to, if you have to at all, switch your design style to to kind of fit both of those languages? I do. And it's it's been challenging because you don't want it to be in a smaller typeface or, you know, like, oh, here's the Spanish translation in a smaller type. No, both are significant. Both deserve the same amount of space, but I am a big fan of negative space and white space and, you know, still trying to hold the integrity of a design so that, you know, the message can still be conveyed, but then not have it be, you know, an overwhelming amount of text And especially with Spanish, it's just longer and you might have something balance out and look perfect in English. And then it's just longer and doesn't balance out in Spanish. It's like, no, I wanted it all on three lines, but no, the Spanish. (laughs) So it's just it can be challenging. Yes. Well, it's important, like you said, to make sure that they share that same level of prominence. I know that I've seen designs where, you know, English, of course, is the one that's mainly shown and then maybe in parentheses or italics underneath in a much smaller size it has whatever <laughs> these other languages are. So I could right. see how trying to feature both would make it a bit challenging. Absolutely. How have you found has been, I guess, the best way to overcome that? I rely a lot on my girlfriends just went to Europe last year. And I said, if you go to any museums, just bring back all the stuff, just all the literature. Because for that, if you're in France, it's actually the English language that is the, you know, secondary language of choice. So do they prioritize English over 
French or do, do they do the same? Where is it, I took a lot of my examples from either I rely a lot on Behance and Pinterest for for my inspiration, but I actually had tangible examples of dual languages for museums and other institutions that gave me a guide arm as to how to design successfully in that same climate. That's a really good idea Mm -hmm. to to get that physical copy so you can see how it works out. Because even though here in the U.S., you know, Behance and Dribbble and Pinterest, et cetera, might be super popular for showing off your work, that might not be the case in other countries. And so being able to get that actual brochure that actual pamphlet to see how they've laid it out is really helpful. That's a really smart idea. I like that. Thank you. Back in, in 2009, I was doing work for uh, for a local mayoral campaign here in Atlanta, and we had to do these microsites. And I think one was in Spanish and one was in Korean. And, <laughs> and I had no idea. I mean, I sort of tried to treat them both the same in terms of, you know, sort of like you said, like make sure they're of of equal prominence, but then it's like, well, am I, do I, I think what probably threw me off the most was the Korean because it's all, you know, glyph based with the, with the symbols. And I was like, am I breaking the word off in the right spot? Cause I didn't want to break it off into another line. And then it had a totally different meaning than, exactly. than what it's supposed to. So it's not mm-hmm. as easy as I think people would, would expect. It's not just a matter of just translating the text over. It's also about, you know, making sure that it's, it makes sense. And then on top of that, you have the challenge of, because we have a Brazilian Latin American curator who, you know, the dialects, a Spanish dialect for Mexican Spanish, as opposed to Brazilian Spanish, things can be more literal in one, you know, Spanish dialect to the other. And somebody will come to me later and be like, that's totally wrong. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just copy man you know i i just designed so i wish i had more of a hand or a better grasp on the span you know spanish language yeah i know what you mean i speak french there's differences between canadian french and french french and Belgian uh, french and even french in the caribbean or french in you know different countries in africa so even though it's yes. the same thing there's different i wouldn't say spellings but there's different sort of concatenations and contractions and (laughs) different you know doing it in another language so i commend you for for the english and spanish design that's really cool thanks what's a typical day like for you i know you are doing a lot of stuff as a jill of all trades as you say but what's a typical day like for you well i rely a lot on uh our internal workflow of base camp is is my savior So a lot of people in the different departments will go ahead and submit whatever their requests are and the dates that they need them. So as soon as I sit down at my desk, I log on to Basecamp to see what is most priority or I confer with my uh, director of marketing just to see, okay, is this proposal take precedence over me doing the magazine layout today? And, you know, uh, the exhibition for this opens in three weeks. So should I generate an outdoor banner? Did that get approved? So it's a lot of either following up or touching base or, you know, working on revision number eight of something. It's a lot of checking in and touching base with every department to be like, okay, are you good? Or let's communicate about this. This is taking priority. So 
we might need to move you a little bit down on the list, but it will get addressed. Or if it's something as simple as a sign, you know, I'll, I'll do it in five minutes and just move it off. So, I mean, I, I try to manage my workload just by, I feel like I'm on a video game like Duck Hunt and I'm just shooting down <laughs> just every random, you know, something that comes in my purview and then just moving on to the next thing until I run out. Yeah, I worked for, this was back in 2000, oh my God, this is 2005, (laughs) for a a convention center here in Atlanta. And I know what you mean, like there's so much stuff that you're doing, there's not really a typical day. You try to check in with different departments and make sure, but I mean, one day I might be designing a PowerPoint deck, the other day I might be updating maps and Illustrator, I might be building out an interactive CD and director, like there's so many different, you know, types of things. Do you have any other kind of help at the museum or are you just kind of the sole designer that's working on all this? I'm the sole designer when it gets to a point where it's like, look, Felicia is, you know, juggling 20 different projects this week. They do contract out, you know, if it's just my workload gets crazy. And actually, I have a design intern that's starting today. Her orientation is later today. So it's a gift and a curse in my opinion, to have an intern, because then I have to stop whatever I'm doing. You know, I could keep blinders on and just focus on my projects at hand. But when I have an intern, while they're helpful, you know, sometimes breaking down the fundamentals of design or trying to at least show them where files are located or where the printer is, or this is our brand style guide. Did you, you know, do trade Gothic or did you do, you know, it's like, being a teacher who has to check up on someone's work perpetually and that can really interfere with my workflow. But once they get going and, and get an understanding, like maybe two or three weeks later, then I can just be like a mother goose and just say, go ahead, little darling, you know, but mm-hmm. in the meantime, it can be challenging, but yeah, I would say right now I'm the in-house, the sole designer of the entire museum. Do you often have interns uh, that are working under you? Just one. You, I can have one per semester. So this starts our summer semester right now. And I just had one that I had continue on for fall and spring. And yeah. What has that, that taught you, being able to have someone that you're sort of supervising in that way? Has it been hard to kind of relinquish control a bit? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't been difficult. I got, well, I just operated in a completely different type of internship experience for me personally. So not that it was, you know, Devil Wears Prada type of running and getting coffee and stuff like that, but I would, I felt like I didn't want to leave because I kept learning something every second. And I think that my dynamic with my most recent intern, it was rewarding, but then I got in trouble a little bit (laughs) at work because they felt like she was learning so much that I was giving her too much work, but she got to a point where she was adapting to the way that I work as far as accepting and understanding the overabundance of, you know, requests and changes that come. Like I wanted to give her the reality of the experience. 
And what it is, is graphic designers always get things. It's a reactionary industry where people say, oh, my God, you know, we just made this amazing album. Oh, but what about the marketing for it? Oh, what about this? And, and then immediately they're like, we are in desperate need of a graphic designer to turn around something in three days. Mm-hmm. And I want to give her that true experience of what it's going to be like. And some of the, you know, other departments were not crazy about the fact that I was giving her such a intense workload. And I, I don't know, it just, it ended up where she got, she built the endurance of what, like, I just knew that she was capable of it. And once she got the endurance and started turning around things quickly and adapted to the style guide, like, she was the one coming to me and saying, okay, I'm done with this. What do you have for me next? And mm-hmm. now she has, she's a senior graphic design manager of some local first uh, company. She just graduated in May and already has a job where she's a manager. Why? Because she knows how to manage her workload now. So I I don't know. It was rewarding, but I just got in trouble for overloading. But that's how I learned. That's how I learned how to manage, you know, what I'm doing. Everybody says, oh, Felicia, you do things so quickly. Well, that's because I lived in a reactionary type of, you know, workflow during my internship phase. All that that you just said is is super important, and it's it's true. You know, I mean, even when I think about my studio, a lot of the work that we'll end up getting from clients, and we don't take all of this work, but you know, people will come in and say, "Oh, well, we need X, Y, Z, and we need it by yesterday." And I know it's not taking into account, you know, whatever we might be working on at the moment. I, I don't know if they're thinking that designers are just kind of sitting back, you know. <laughs> waiting for the work to just come in you know but it's like i often have to tell people like we'll have to put you on our timeline and we'll get to you in two weeks or a month or something like that i just had something recently where met with a client potential client i should say two weeks ago gave them a proposal and i tell them proposals are good for two weeks because quite frankly our workload changes and shifts and timeline shifts so if we're quoting you this specific time and price it's within this two-week period anything outside of that it can change and right. sure, the day after the proposal expired, they're like, can we get an extension on the review? And already that's like a red flag to me that if I were to go into a project with them, it would be the same kind of thing. Yeah, it'd be a disaster. Yeah. But the reactionary part is um, it, it is true. I mean, you know, one thing that I hear from people that I interview for the show, and these are generally folks that come from a strict art school background, like they went from high school to art school and then they went out in the industry is that they didn't feel like they were prepared for how reactionary it was. They Mm -hmm. weren't prepared for the fact that they were going to have tight turnarounds or that they might potentially be working in a production environment or in some sort of place where they've got a, they've got work that they have to be proactive in doing, you know? And I think that about, you know, kind of letting your intern know, like, this is, this is the business. This is what it is. Exactly. And, you know, when I had my, last, you know, goodbye lunch with her, she was just so grateful for that. She was like, I, you know, she she said that she went into her new job and she would finish like two proposals in, you know, three days. And they were just astonished because they had contractors that they spent five weeks working on, you know, a similar type of project and they didn't have to do that with her. So, yeah. 
let's go back a bit. I'm I'm interested to know, did you always have this interest in design? Like were you a creative child? Did you did you draw and paint all through school? Like where did you get that creative spark from? Honestly, I got a lot of that influence and inspiration as far as art from my father and from my aunt. Well, I'm originally, I was born in New York mm-hmm. and I specifically remember being like three or four. And I remember a huge mural of the silhouette of the Wiz, you know, the old 70s album cover. Yeah. He, he did a huge mural of it on on the wall in the apartment that we lived in, in uh, Rochdale, Queens. And just seeing something like that and how he would sketch Diana Ross, like I still have sketches that, you know, he did throughout his life. He had his own kind of drawing desk. And I remember trying to copy or mimic some of the things that he did when my parents asked me to you know, decorate my room, I would, you know, try to draw murals of my own on my wall in my house. And then once we moved to Iowa, I did the same thing. And, but then I would go back to visit New York every summer. And every other weekend, I would hang out with my Aunt Carol, and she would take me to the museums. And I remember seeing like Picasso when I was like eight years old, and Mm -hmm. just completely mesmerized and like how did they do this and Basquiat and just being completely enthralled with any of that so I think those were a lot of the influences that I had in my early years but as I moved on I tried to do speech and debate and things like that because everyone you you know the old adage that if you're African-American and you don't say, yo, 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 you know, you speak so well, you know? So I went into a communications major in the University of Iowa because every time I, you know, tried to angle towards career in the arts, all I kept hearing was, you're going to be a starving artist and, oh, you want to paint? You know, that's not going to, you know, pay the rent. So I tried to go in a different direction towards something that I knew would be more professional, like maybe it would lead to management, maybe it would lead to PR opportunities, you know, just pursuing any, you know, industry related to communications. But it wasn't my passion. I always tried to do something creative. You know, like I said, my my parents would tell me to clean my room and somehow it would turn into a project of me like redecorating and putting the bed on the opposite wall and taking mm. down posters and putting them over here. And my mom would be like, girl, I just asked that you get your clothes up off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, I think I, I always tried strive to make things beautiful or, or just find the beauty in something from an early age. Yeah. That whole adage of, you know, you're not going to make money going into the arts is a, a common refrain that, I mean, I've, I've experienced it myself. When I wanted to go to college, I wanted to major in English. I wrote like all through, like K through 12, wrote, published, all that sort of stuff. But the whole kind of thing was, well, you're not going to make any money doing that. You know, you need to go into something that's going to make you money. And I was good at math and science and eventually that's what I went into. But sometimes I do think like, what if I did 
go that alternate route and majored in English or because even, you know, design stuff, I was into computers and programming a little bit in high school, but it wasn't really something that I, you know, kind of thought to pursue in college, if that makes any sense. So Absolutely. I do not wonder what that alternate sort of thing was, but I think what I hope is happening is that that narrative is starting to uh, starting to dwindle a bit. I'm not saying it's going away completely, but I hope it's starting to dwindle as more parents and more, you know, just people in general are exposed to what, you know, we are doing in the arts so they can see that it is a viable career option. Exactly. And I just, I just didn't realize even like I was the editor of the yearbook in my high school. And I remember (laughs) actually laying out the page, like kids don't know anything about this crap. (laughs) Like actually having the photographs and sticking them onto the page and then sending them off to the printer, you Mm -hmm. know, with the placement of how things are supposed to go. And I think once I got, when I moved to Arizona is when I aggressively started pursuing a career as a graphic designer, but I had no clue that there was a way to incorporate art and computers. What? You know, I was completely thrown. The way that it happened was I moved here from Iowa. I had a sprinkling of family here in Arizona. This was 2001. And I thought the best way for me to network and get to know people, well, African-American people in the Valley, was to apply to run for Miss Black Arizona. So I was, I sold Yellow Page advertising back in Iowa, and I transitioned to working for Dex Yellow Pages when I worked here in Phoenix. So I networked a little bit and I was looking for sponsors and African-American entrepreneurs. And I came across this, I came across this gentleman who owned Arizona Black Pages. And he said, if you come on and work at my company, since you're already in the industry of selling yellow page advertising, I'll tell you what, if you come on to my company and work part-time and sell advertising for the black pages, which, you know, me being 20, I didn't realize was a conflict of interest, but whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you come on and work at our company, anything you sell, I will double it for your sponsorship because I needed like $500 in order to actually run for Miss Black Arizona. So I said, no problem. And so I came after work to Arizona's Black Pages at six o'clock. And the first night I sold an ad to an existing advertiser. um, And she said, yes, but I have a quarter page ad with you guys in the Black Pages. But I need my hours changed and my photo swapped out. So I'm going to email you the new photo. And our hours are now from nine to six. And I was like, okay, no problem. So I sent the order and the invoice over to the owner of the Black Pages. And he said, that's great, but I've just acquired the company and my graphic designer quit. Here's these two Macs over here in the back. Good luck. (laughs) So I said, oh, okay. I was like, I was editor at the yearbook. How hard could this be? So I opened Adobe PageMaker, okay? (laughs) And this is where- That takes back. Right. (laughs) 
So I open it and maybe three hours later, I figure out how to replace her photo and, you know, change the hours. And he recounts hearing a squeal from me at about, you know, 10 o'clock at night where I was like, oh, my God, come over. Look what I can do. Here's the text tool. And I deleted this and I swapped this out. He's like, "Okay, thanks. You know, but from then on, I was (laughs) So he saw how, you know, enthused I was by it and found some city, you know, subsidy or some stipend that allowed me to go and get like a certificate in, you know, like graphic design. And that's where like my whole graphic design career kind of began. Wow. Yeah. That is an amazing story. I mean, (laughs) I, I certainly empathize with the Yellow Pages part. I actually worked for AT&T Yellow Pages for two years. <laughs> I, know that, I know that environment very well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's so cool that you ended up kind of switching to the competition. And in turn, it, it sounds like they really nurtured you on the job. Is, oh, that, is that kind of a good way to put it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would not be where I was if it wasn't for the black pages, like they, and I don't even want, like, don't even dig in the archives for Arizona's black <laughs> because this man had so much confidence in me. Like I was designing full page ads like six months into, and now I just want to kill myself when I look at some of the things that I designed. I was like, really? But I thought it was so brilliant back then. But hey, look, the, the market changes, technology change. We've all got early designs that are cringeworthy. <laughs> But yeah, it it definitely, it got to a point where I was doing so much graphic design at the Black Pages that a graphic design position actually opened up at Dex Yellow Pages. So I transitioned from the sales department into the graphic design department and worked with them for seven years, just doing advertising, you know, for lawyers and plumbers and, you know, the like for seven years until I started to get hungry for magazine design, which is just, that's just my passion. If I could just do magazine design until the day I die, I would be completely happy. I just, that's a passion of mine. You were a creative director for a magazine for a while too, right? I was, yes, for a motorcycle magazine of all things. And that was quite a learning curve for me. But yeah, it was a great experience. We've had a few magazine designers here on the show. We've had, this is way back in the early days, we had Chris Barker. And then I want to say that was 2015, like December 2015, we had Carol Brooks, who at the time was the creative director for The Atlantic. And now he's working over over at Apple. And And both of them really talk, you know, very passionately about magazine design and and why it's important and how a lot of their inspiration really came from them being younger and seeing, you know, how vibrant magazines were and how much of a role they played in, you know, getting news in terms of aspirations, you know, with celebrities, et cetera. What does your passion from a, from magazine design stem from? I think not only the, it's how topography and the words itself can lend to the story, just, Finding out, you know, how to make the byline more interesting or the pull quote or, 
you know, the page numbers, like building a magazine from scratch. Oh, it's so, ter- again, terrifying and elating, you know, to do something like that. But just to know that not only the writer has a part in telling the story, but the placement of the photos, the title treatment, you know, what you can do with it, what the color scheme is, what photos you decide to incorporate into the story, whether or not it's going to be an opening spread with just a, you know, a quote, or if it's just going to be the silhouette. It's just, there's so many ways to have a hand in making that story funny or impactful or sad or like you set the tone not just the writer it's it's your responsibility as a designer to understand the words and what the story is trying to convey and keep that narrative going that's a lot of pressure and people think it's just the turn of a page but that's all part of it you have a a hundred page magazine and you have the wherewithal to stop someone in their tracks, whether or not it be the part of the photographer, but you know, it's how it's placed in the layout. It's, it's all the responsibility of the graphic designer to keep that narrative going and to have it still be cohesive with the rest of the magazine and the other, you know, 90, 98 pages that have to go with that whole book. It's a story and you're part of it. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it. And I don't know if people who just get magazines really realize that. Uh, it's something mm-hmm. that I think about, particularly when I see the prices of magazines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much goes into it. There's so many people, there's so many working parts, reporters, you know, typesetters, designers, et cetera. And then I'll see. <laughs> I'll see somewhere where you could get three years of a magazine for ten dollars, and it's like, right. <laughs> and then it's interesting because I'll get the renewal things, and it's like, oh well, if you renew it, seventy nine dollars. I'm like, well, that's a lot, but I mean, it does go into all of these, you know, sorts of other things. But whatever I think about the pricing of magazines, but then also realizing how much goes into it, it's like, is it like a a bum deal? Is it worth it? Like it seems like a a, a raw deal in some sort of way. Yeah, but then it all comes down to paper and, you know, the stock of the paper, whether or not there's a gold foil on the masthead on the cover and, you know, just all of these little details that when I'm in a bookstore and I see like a a magazine for 1995, it's like, well, why? Let's investigate. And when it comes the bottom line and the quality of the product and knowing that that's a keepsake and something that you're going to keep and not toss out like, you know, Sports Illustrated. This is a memento. This is part of the story that they were trying to tell. And it's a keepsake. My grandmother still has old Ebony magazines from (laughs) like the 70s and 80s. That I, I mean, I fondly remember them as a kid. I mean, even when I go home recently, she still has them. And for me, I just recently, I've been sort of redecorating, cleaning out my apartment. And I came across like my old stash of comic books and Wizard magazines. There used to be this magazine called Wizard for comic collectors. And the stuff in there is super dated. It's like 1999, 2000, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. This is like right around the genesis of when you started to see comic book movies come out, like the first X-Men movie came out. And I still am going to keep all these magazines. I was like, should I get rid of them? Should I sell them? But like, 
when I look through these magazines, I get so much inspiration now, 17 years later. Mm-hmm. That, wow, this is, it makes me wish the magazine was still around, but it, I think it's, the the inspiration and the the dedication and the painstaking work that goes into magazine design is something that should not be overlooked. I, I think the first yeah. magazine I fell in love with when I was a kid were like YSB, Emerge, like yes. uh, Five. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, I remember like Wesley Snipes just black on the cover. Like, <laughs> yeah. I remember keeping that. It's funny enough that you mentioned Ebony. This is a topic that I really want to discuss. I mentioned it to you earlier was, you know, the fact that Ebony has had a huge layout change, like a huge overall overhaul as far as their design. And it is brilliant and still holds true to the integrity and the history of Mm -hmm. Ebony. But Uh, What bugs me about stuff like that is that I have to do like an intense search to find out who was responsible for that. You know, who is the brainchild behind the whole design overhaul of the Mm -hmm. magazine? Like the person, let's stop talking about agency work. Why is it that other people are heralded and, you know, honored, but the moment a new Spider-Man poster comes out, they say, oh, here's the new one. We're going to give you a sneak peek in this, but not credit the person that actually designed it. Like, is that part of, you know, some type of contracted rule? Like, I'm, I'm really puzzled by stuff like that just to not know who was responsible or when you see like title card design or just anything for a movie, it it says like this agency. No, I want to know the name of the guy who decided what font treatment was going to be in the opening of, you know, this movie that just came out or the, it just, I think it's significant. And I don't, and I feel like that is part of the reason why, graphic designers are not overlooked, but they're just not heralded the way that, you know, songwriters are. All of it comes apart, all comes together in packaging. And mm. and graphic design is a significant part of it. So that's just annoying to me. I, that's annoying to me too. And I certainly understand where you're coming from there. To talk about Ebony, actually, there's something else you mentioned that ties into Ebony that I want to discuss. Yeah. When Ebony went there when they really started to do their first big graphic overhaul, that was in 2010. Actually, Daryl Crooks, who I mentioned, who was the uh, creative director at the Atlantic. Yes. He was the creative director at Ebony at that time. Oh, wow. And he was responsible, a black man, he was responsible for overhauling the website and the magazine to this completely new format, which is what they've sort of carried on with today. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's ever really been... I guess, mentioned a lot. Like if I do see something like that mentioned, it would be in something like ad week or, you know, something that pertains to advertising, but not necessarily that pertains to, yeah. I, I wouldn't I, see it in a design publication. Yeah. I just Googled it. It's on ad age. <laughs> yeah. And uh, even with, you know, to talk about Ebony now, who uh, <laughs> they've now been sold off to another company. They've moved operations from Chicago to LA. Yeah. And now, you know, to talk about, you know, not getting credit for work. Now they're going through this whole problem with even the, the writers for pieces are not getting 
their just compensation for work to the point where it's negatively affecting the company. They're blocking people on Twitter. Like I read that. Yeah. It's sort of, I mean, it's a sad decline for something that is such an iconic brand, you know, not just in the, in the black community here in the U S but I think just in the magazine design community in general to sort of turn on, not just, I wouldn't say they're turning on their readers, but they're certainly turning on the people that are making them what they are. And I wonder if that's something that could eventually continue to happen if we don't really see creatives getting the credit and the compensation for the work that they do. Absolutely. Yeah, title card stuff is super interesting, too. Uh, Xavier Ruffin, who we had back in, I want to say 2014, 2015, he does a lot of that stuff. He is based out of Milwaukee. But he's done art direction for a few hip hop artists, like I think for T.I. and for some other people. He did a lot of creative work for the FX series Atlanta with Donald. Uh-huh. Yes, that's amazing. So he's done a, he does a lot of that sort of title card kind of work, but he's behind the scenes a lot. And when I saw so much stuff happening, like all the, the big graphic push behind Atlanta with posters and the little viral videos and stuff like that. I didn't know that Xavier was doing all that stuff until I saw him mentioning it on his Facebook and <laughs> about it because it's not something that you'll see mentioned in a design magazine. Like, I don't know why, and I'm saying we, of course, is just black creators, but I don't know why creators in general aren't getting that kind of recognition for that sort of work. Maybe it's just something that seems like a seamless marketing campaign. And so of course, Donald Glover and the actors that are in the series will get their, you know, record, you know, recognition for the work, but the creative folks is just sort of languishing in the shadows and not exactly. really they're you know, they're not getting their flowers for the work that they're doing. I mean, they do, but they do like on, I mean, it's not in relation to TV, but like the Academy Awards and sciences, they get like a brunch on like the Saturday before, you know, yeah. <laughs> where, right. <laughs> it's, like the Saturday before, it's like a five minute vignette <laughs> main, main, uh, event or something which i would actually love to go to something like that i wonder if it's like you know ticketed or if anybody can go and get dressed up just go to la hey you're close it might might just be something ticketed i mean i think think if you find out early enough in advance you could make it happen road trip road trip (laughs) (laughs) now you've been a working designer in this industry for almost 15 years now yeah how seen the industry change during that time? I just, <laughs> I remember just saving my druthers to go to the Apple store and actually buy Creative Suite 2. <laughs> I just remember, you know, spending so much money to just get the whole Creative Suite. And now you can just like rent it monthly. I think that that's something interesting like I just throwing away all of my books and how mm. you know macromedia flash is you know used to be kind of a big thing and now it's almost obsolete I don't know just things have shifted or there are things that I learned especially when I took my certification class that it is is true if you don't use it you lose it baby because I'm grateful to be in a job and in, in a position right now with Phoenix Art Museum, where they still rely heavily on print products and print design. Because even though I took like Java classes and Dreamweaver and everything, but you know, honey, that was 2003, you know, 
things have changed. And, and I didn't have an opportunity as primarily a print designer for the Yellow Pages for seven years to incorporate Java or HTML or any of those things into my daily workflow. So now, I mean, I can tell you how to bold a line, you know, in coding and or underline something, but that's about it. So knowing something like that, even with my years of experience, I still feel heavily intimidated by, you know, the way that that designers are not disrespected. Nope, that's the right turn. They are disrespected because they're, I feel like companies are greedy. They want not only a print designer, they want you to know web and they want you to know social media and they want you to know all of these, you know, little nuanced and specialized things, but they just want to pay you one salary. Those are so, it's just so many things that are required of you now that I'm reminded of this movie with Kevin Klein, where he's an architect and he is still literally putting like literal grass on a design that he wants to present to people. And he, he's surrounded by all of these younger architects that are doing everything on their computer and just emailing it to their clients. And he is just straight old school. And I just mm-hmm. feel like the way that the graphic design industry has, you know, grown that uh, sometimes I feel like a bit of a dinosaur in that respect, because I feel like even with me going back to school and getting my bachelor's degree, it was just a class. I took a class in film editing or in Final Cut Pro. But if I'm not using those tools day to day, I have, or if I don't have like something to show an example to someone, I'm kind of pigeonholed in what I'm used to, which is mm-hmm. scary, I guess. So it's just, I, yeah. Now I was going to say, speaking of, of the degree, and I did want to talk about that, you know, you were working as a designer full-time for 10 years before you decided to go back and get your bachelor's degree in graphic design. Do you feel like that was something that you needed to do, even though you had been working as a designer for so long? I felt, well, uh, <laughs> Funny as it is, as soon as I got my certification in graphic design, which was about 2002, I started aggressively applying to Phoenix Art Museum to be a designer there. The more I applied, they just kept confirming that they got my application and then I just wouldn't hear anything from them. And I had twins around 2010 And by 2011, I was like, you know what? Let me just knock this thing out. I keep making excuses for why I don't have my degree, but let me just do it. And so I got on an online program and was, you know, rocking my kids to sleep and reading and studying at the same time, just a class at a time. And then by 2014, I finally have my bachelor's degree. But then I turned around in 2015 and applied to Phoenix Art Museum with bachelor's degree on my resume, and I got a call back. (laughs) So it's just interesting, like some institutions and some companies, that's just their guide arm to know, you know, that you are an experienced designer. Sometimes it works out in my favor. Like I moved to Oregon in 2010, 
and got a job at Nike without my degree because they decided to look at my years of work experience as opposed to the fact that I did not have a degree. And then there's some institutions where they just won't even give your resume a second look unless they see bachelor's degree or master's degree on it. So it really is a crapshoot, in my opinion. But I've had success in both, you know, at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. It's it's so odd how the degree, at least for design, is now being shown as like this validation of your experience, particularly when, and then we sort of talked about this before we started recording. Yeah. When we talk about the non-traditional paths to success in this industry, not everyone is going to go to design school and get a bachelor's degree or go to any school and get a you know a bachelor's degree or associates or what have you. In order to be a working designer, you could just have a great portfolio of work. You could have picked skills with general assembly. You could have learned something online and still have the skills that you need in order to do a particular job. But the fact that companies are looking at you having that, you know, that one benchmark to say, hey, oh, well, you've got a bachelor's degree in design, so we'll give you a call back. Exactly. I hate that. (laughs) Yeah, that's so annoying, especially... You know, I felt like my portfolio was pretty strong and it's like, just look at all my stuff. Just take my word for it. But maybe they just wanted to know that you have the wherewithal to handle the workflow. No, no, that's that's dumb. Just strike what I just said, because I have the (laughs) work experience to reflect that I know what I'm doing. But that's neither here nor there. It's just. But there's going to come a point where even with my bachelor's degree and with my vast work experience that, you know, if I did want to seize another opportunity that, you know, I'm intimidated by the, you know, you need to have HTML experience or coding or whatever. It's like, no, I just I just want to design magazines, man, and invitations and banners and just do all the things that are necessary in that field. So. Yeah. I, I hope the industry doesn't keep going down that road where they feel having a bachelor's degree is, uh, is necessary. Cause when mm-hmm. I, when I think about the tech industry, you know, kind of in, in comparison, there was certainly a good stretch where the fact that you went to college was kind of a negative. Like, <laughs> right. if, like if you dropped out and you had the skills, like you were some sort of a guerrilla programmer of some sort, that was, <laughs> asset to you than you seeing your way through a four-year program at an institution and graduating with a degree like like I think of myself I've got a my bachelor's degree is in math you know how hard it is to get a design degree I mean to get a job with a math degree it's very hard it's very difficult I got my first design job in the back pages of alt weekly here in Atlanta because I was submitting my work and submitting my resume but they're like oh we're really looking for someone that has a bachelor's degree in graphic design. I'm like, here's my portfolio of work and here's my testimonials. And it just wasn't enough because they didn't see this one particular thing, which was bachelor's degree graphic design. And therefore, because I didn't have that, I wasn't a viable candidate, you know? Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Especially as educational experiences now are not only more varied because of, of technology, You've also got these sort of non-traditional places like a treehouse or a or general or boot camp 
uh, or even quite frankly, uh, and I don't know how much this discussion is being had, but the difference between nonprofit schools and for-profit schools for design mm-hmm. education, because you went to you went to Full Sail, which is a for-profit institution, yeah. and there are you know I, I would assume they're a nonprofit, but you've got schools like a MICA or a RISD or an SVA. Who is to say that the design education coming out of both of these institutions is not comparable? Is one being seen by employers as more viable because of the school name or is it because of what the person actually learned while they were there? Like, I don't know if that conversation is being had. I'm certainly interested in having the conversation. I mean, I I taught design at a for profit university for a while, so I know it's it's a. it's not, <laughs> it's a challenge. I'll put it that way. Oh, no. Absolutely. I'm interested in knowing like, how that yeah. works. I remember actually just a couple of weeks ago, just kind of breaking down parts of my resume and, you know, talking with a colleague and letting them know that I went to Full Sail University. And they're like, oh, you know, like, uh, mm. you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I did the work. I put in the work. I put in the money. You better hush it up unless you want to pay my student loans. Talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested in that because, I mean, it's it's something that, I mean, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of as these educational opportunities are, are becoming more varied throughout the industry. Everyone's not coming into this in the same way, in the same path. And particularly when companies talk about diversity of course they're talking about gender diversity racial diversity but they also have to think about the diversity of where they're sourcing candidates from Mm -hmm. and some companies will only look at these sort of top tier types of schools you know like a micro or RISD, but they may not look at full sale or they may not look at uh devry or something like that and think oh well you got your design degree from devry Right. Like that sort of thing, you know, with that kind of derision, not thinking like, hey, I worked and worked my ass off to get that degree and I've got what it takes, you know? So it's, oh, I'm going to have that conversation one day and it's going to shake the table. But I mean, <laughs> I'm really interested in it because there's so many different ways to come into this industry. Not everyone is, is doing it in the same way. And even if we talk about, you know, the socioeconomic kind of disparity between African-Americans and Latinos as, a, as opposed to white households and how the median net worth for white households is like 10 times more than for black and Latino households. And how does that also break down with tuition prices for like a full sale university, which like you said, you paid the money and did it online versus if someone went to a school like, like RISD or MICA, that might be 40 or $50,000 a year for mm-hmm. just tuition, not including room and board and supplies and all the other stuff that goes with it. Like, we got to talk about it because I think as, as the industry grows, that's something which needs to be addressed. And this industry is still fairly young, you know, graphic design, at least digitally, I think, you know, really is only about what, like 30 something years old. Like it's yes. pretty young in terms of the, the time frame of a lot of other established industries. So agreed. Uh, it's, it's a conversation I think that's going to end up happening sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So what is it that, that kind of keeps you motivated and inspired? I mean, it sounds like with the work that you're doing at Phoenix Art Museum, it certainly keeps you busy. What is it that sort of keeps you going? What do you? I think for me, it's even with the workload, knowing that I have the privilege of going to work and, and creating all day, like it's just, that's just so beautiful to me. 
just even when I'm stressed or even when like that's a de-stressor for me knowing that figuring out what font treatment I'm going to use on this advertisement or where I'm going to place this or, you know, would it look more beautiful there or knowing that I can actually step away from my, you know, desk and walk around the museum and get inspired is uh, just, I feel privileged in my position and in my work to have that as an option because not everybody has that. What advice would you give for somebody that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps? Hmm. I would say the advice is you definitely try to get some type of instruction, but, um, but again, it doesn't have to be, you know, in a formal school environment, not, not to me, not with all of the resources. Like I wish I had asklinda.com back in the day, you know, I would have saved myself (laughs) $70,000. But I think between that and and YouTube and, you know, finding a way everyone has a voice or something, whether or not it's making an e-zine or, you know, making your own postcards, like everyone has the capability of being creative. Even the least creative person can decide, you know what, I'm just going to bend down the corners of this postcard and, and paint it black and just say hi on the front. It's like, you just designed something, silly rabbit. You know, it's, <laughs> it doesn't have to be this amazing whatever thing. It's just, you know, thrive off of negative space and, and you know, keeping no more than two or three fonts, you know, in, you know, one one space so that you don't confuse somebody or throw somebody off or distract somebody from what your messaging is. Like just all a little, all of those little nuance, you know, little rules that everyone kind of knows in the back of their head. But I think a lot of my inspiration comes from just looking and seeing, you know, Pinterest or like, or Behance or any of the other resourceful websites or, you know, back in the day, I just lived at Borders and just spent all my money on magazines and just tried to see how I could replicate it or put my own spin on it or be like, why did they make that, you know, the first letter in this paragraph so big? Oh, it's a drop cap. What? You know, (laughs) just (laughs) being completely enthralled by something like that and just trying to understand the purpose of it and does it work and why it works. We actually have something at Phoenix Art Museum called Slow Art Day. And usually when you're in a museum, you want to try and capture or engulf every piece every of, of the museum while you're there. You want to try and get to the Renaissance part. You want to get to the Asian art. You want to get to the contemporaries. But Slow Art Day suggests that you look at one piece for like half an hour and really think about it and assess it. Why did they use this paint stroke there? What did this, you know, represent? What did this mean over here? Why did they put that cactus in the far right corner? You know, just sitting back and looking and really trying to see what what is purposeful about that one piece of art and how it might resonate, not just for you, but for the masses. I think for a graphic designer to really just take a hold of one piece and look at it and 
I think it was in, I, I was obsessed with Six Feet Under for a while. And one of the characters, Claire, was in art school and her teacher, Olivier, said to break your eye open. And what it meant was just to look at something that you've been predisposed to be, think that you see a lollipop in front of you and it's like, oh, it's just a lollipop. But what else could it be? Could it be if you put it out in the sun and you let it melt? You know, is it a river for ants, a sticky river? You know, like what else could that lollipop be? And I think that would be my suggestion for anyone who wants to be a designer is to just kind of break your eye open and look at something and and take it on as your own and just see it and just flip it on his head. Break your eye open. I love that. Yeah. I love that saying. That is really dope. Mm-hmm. Do you get any sort of inspiration from, uh, you know, you say you get it by looking. What about kind of just from the design scene in Phoenix altogether? What, what, what is the design scene like for you there? We have a Phoenix Design Week that happens annually. I think it's in its fourth or fifth year. So that's really inspirational to actually network with other creatives in the Valley. We have something called First Fridays where it's all the art galleries in downtown Phoenix are open and free to the public. And um, you can just, and including Phoenix Art Museum. So it's just opportunities for you to, Uh, again, network. I would say that murals and local artists, those are like big burgeoning things that are happening on the scene. A lot of spoken word, a lot of storytelling series. I would love, love, love to see more live art. Like if it were up to me to just kind of have a space monthly or quarterly where someone's work can be showcased and then have them actually create art on the spot. Uh, I remember Raheem Devon did that, um, he, uh, R&B vocalist, where he was mm-hmm. traveling on tour and had two artists that just had easels while he was just singing. And I just thought that was so dope. <laughs> just so cool. But I think just being witness to art as it happens, we're having a little bit of a challenge now because Phoenix is, as I think it is the sixth or fifth, you know, highest metropolitan city in the U.S. And we've been kind of bombarded by all of these skyscraper apartment buildings and they're kind of breaking down or tearing down just some of the indie kind of underground type of art galleries and stuff that really made downtown Phoenix and the art scene unique. So I think they're in a bit of a scramble right now to still hold on to the integrity of that while, you know, transitioning to a true metropolitan city. Because, I mean, while Phoenix is metropolitan, it's also kind of a small town, in my opinion. But, yeah. Yeah, when when I think of design, and I think when people think of, you know, kind of design cities or design focused cities, I'll admit Phoenix doesn't really register. <laughs> when I, think, I just think it's hot. Right. It, which... I, think I think of hot and I think of, <laughs> I think of those two things. Uh, but but it's, it sounds like from what you're saying is that the art scene is is there. It's coming along. I think the Phoenix Design Week is, is a great thing. I wish we had one in Atlanta. You, you know Atlanta does not have a Design Week? Come on. No. We have a design, I think it's like a design month. But... It's focused around architecture 
and we share it. Ugh, I don't know why we have to share it, <laughs> but we share it with Athens, Georgia, which is about 100 miles away, and Asheville, North Carolina. So there'll be events that are like in those three cities, but I'm like, why don't we have a design week? I think we had one at one point in time, but nobody is is like taking it on anymore. I don't know, but it's be glad you have a design week. Yeah. All I'm saying. <laughs> That's a good, a good thing. Yeah. Now, Raheem Devon, of course, we're talking about R&B. You mentioned in your bio that you are a singer I, as well. I do sing a little let's, bit. Let's talk about this. <laughs> when did you start singing? Out of the womb, you know. Um, <laughs> just imagine little Felicia next to, you know, my dad's whiz mural, you know, and people coming in and me, like, serenading them. My mom said I used to sing people endless love, like, Whenever they came in, I was just like, my love, there's only <laughs> you in my life. So, yeah, I've been singing since the beginning. And you're still performing now? I am. I'm in a couple of bands right now as a featured vocalist, but it's just, Look at you. yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying, but uh, it's mostly, uh, it's like my painting. I also do oil painting on the side and it's just it's just a hobby it's like what i told you uh, um i have, have the responsibility while i love going to work every day it's still that's my job that's my responsibility to put food on the table and feed my children so mm-hmm. i feel like with all of the responsibilities that i have as an adult that you know me singing or me painting is my playtime that's that's me being able to have that creative outlet that is aside from the responsibilities that I have as an adult. With all of this creative stuff that you're involved in, you know, you're, you're designing, you're painting, you're singing. Do you find that you're satisfied creatively? Like, do you think all of these things together are kind of fulfilling your creative needs right now? No, no, I'm, I'm never satisfied If I were an octopus or if I could clone myself, like I know that people say that, but I, I just truly wish that I could do more. I mean, I wish that um, I could worry about the arts programs, you know, in the Valley. It's really disturbing to me that my kids only have an art class once a week and they only have gym like once a week. Like what? I went to gym every day. I went to art every day. Like, you know, just wanting to read them Shel Silverstein books and look at the animation in that and drawing and painting with them. And it's just, I feel like that is lost on our youth, you know, or if they do create, it's digitally on our iPads, but that's great. But let's, let's put pen to paper, ma'am, you know, and, (laughs) and really, you know, see what ideas can hatch, you know. So I say you know a lot. So feel free to edit that out. I'm so sorry. I say you know. No. <laughs> you find that your kids want to follow in your footsteps? My daughter is the singer and the artist. Uh, my my son is just, he's just, I have a girl who's all girl and a boy who's all boy. If <laughs> If it were up to my son, he would just parkour off of walls like all day. That's. 
you know, him going to change into his PJs, he does like a bear crawl, you know, and then a somersault <laughs> to get to his dresser. It's like, son, just stop. So they have the exuberance and the enthusiasm that I want to try and, you know, push that or encourage them in those areas. So I hope that art is definitely a part of that. And maybe that will be, but I, I just, just have so many ideas. I want a, you know, a spoken word night, you know, where, like I said, where live art is happening at the same time. And then maybe a jazz quartet is playing in the back. I don't know. It's just, I want to find a way to infuse and inspire and push, you know, creativity on people to let them know that they are capable of it, that anybody cre can create and anybody can do it. And I'm just never satisfied. I don't know. So it's, everything is, everything's a work in progress. That's what I think of my, when I think of myself, it's just a work in progress because even as a graphic designer, I want to, you know, eventually go into film. I want to eventually maybe start shooting. I want to not only, I'm in a funk and soul band, but maybe I want to, you know, learn more piano or guitar so that I can like do my own jazz thing. You know, it's just, even when I've had, have an established way to create and get, you know, my creativity out there, I always think, well, what about this? and just want to, again, flip it on its lid. Again, break my eye open. It's like, why am I doing all funk and soul? Why don't I, you know, start a polka band this week? You know, it's just, you don't never know whether or not polka infused with R&B might be really dope. And then I'll be a pioneer. And then, I'll, you know, it's just, I need to calm down. But that's where my mind is always going and trying to find the next opportunity. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, is, is there a dream project that you would love to work on or anything? What do you think you'll be doing? I really want to direct. I really want to really take that leap into learning about film. I'm actually thinking about pursuing that for my master's. Ava DuVernay is such an inspiration to me. I've been watching Queen Sugar on loop. I think... Mm -hmm cinematographer for that show should get all of the awards in the world. It's just, it's all directed by women each episode. Uh, and it's just such a beautiful show. Every still, every di piece of dialogue while these people are exchanging these beautiful words, you could push pause on that show and see a beautiful photograph that could be hung up in my apartment. And that's what, needs to be conveyed and just that type of beauty needs that the ball needs to keep rolling on something like that. And just even wonder woman coming out this weekend, I haven't seen it yet, but it's gotten loads of reviews. It's getting heralded just because of it having a female director and it being the highest grossing film by a female director. Th those are the things that need to be encouraged. And, you know, I feel like, is something that I would want to just kind of explore a little bit more. Yeah. Queen sugar is such a, uh, and I mean, by the time this interview airs, it'll be back on the air. Yeah, I think, but that is such a gorgeous show. Oh. I mean, I was drawn in because of, of Ava. Like once I was like Oprah and Ava working together. Yeah. I want to see what that's going <laughs> to be about. But like you said, every, 
it's such a rich show in a myriad of ways. Like it's it's visually stunning. The story is compelling. The actors are giving 110%. The music is good. Like it all culminates into this package that is just, I, I can't get enough of that show. I yes. really can't. So beautiful. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Busy Fee. Busy Fee is my little nickname, Felicia Fee. So at Busy Fee is where you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter. And um, if you want to see some of my actual work for Phoenix Art Museum, you can go to phxart.org or follow phxart on Instagram and on Twitter. Yeah, that's about it. All right, sounds good. Well, Felicia Penza, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, it's interesting whenever I have someone on the show, I, I feel like I think I've got an idea of where the conversation will go. But to me, it's it's always interesting to talk to someone. And then the more that they sort of reveal about themselves, the more I sort of just get enthralled and interested in their story. And it sounds like to me, you have you have done so much in terms of coming from where you have this kind of really strong print background to what you're doing now. I, I just sort of empathize a lot with your story because I went through a lot of that similar stuff. Like I worked at a museum for a while. I, you know, that kind of thing. I get all of that. But I mean, it sounds like you are somebody that is capable of, of really kind of putting Phoenix on the map in terms of design and the work that you're doing. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do in the next five years. Hopefully it will be that film. Hopefully we'll be seeing your work on, on the silver screen someday. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Felicia Penza and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Felicia and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow sales and make money in their sleep. You know, MailChimp has really grown from being just an email service provider to becoming your one-stop place for marketing your business. Aside from sending email, it ties into hundreds of other services like Hootsuite for social media, Zapier for other third-party integrations, Salesforce for CRM, Eventbrite if you're selling tickets, and many, many others. Get everything you need all in one place and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of extensions across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. 
Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. 60% y'all. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and secondly, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings for Design Podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.